Welcome to Wizardists. I'm Paul Canetti. This is episode 15. So last week, I actually put out a text-based post that was actually based on episode 12 of the podcast called Replace Your Face, iPhone 10 as the world's first mass market AR device. And I actually transcribed the uh, audio from that podcast episode and then whittled it down and edited and added some visuals and stuff um, as the basis for an article. And for those of you that happen to have listened to episode 12, it's the only episode to date that I did without a guest where this had been something that I had been thinking about uh, writing about for a while and just couldn't find the time to do it. And then I thought, you know what, why don't I just turn on the mic and just riff for a half hour or so. And so then I thought, okay, well, that's a good basis for an article. Posted it on Medium. um, And the next morning I woke up and it had been reposted a bunch of times, including by Medium itself. Um, And it was featured on medium.com homepage uh, and tweeted out by Medium to their millions of followers. And all of a sudden, this random post that um, I hadn't even really intended to write, but uh, just sort of made sense as an extension of that podcast episode, um, started being retweeted and uh, quoted in, in a Business Insider article. And um, and that was the first thing I'd written since May. So maybe I should write more or maybe I should just write more about, you know, new iPhones the same week as when they come out. But uh, if you haven't listened to episode 12, I recommend checking it out um, or reading the article, which will take you five minutes instead of 30 minutes uh, to hear about my thoughts on augmented reality and how iPhone 10 really represents the beginning of the trajectory that I think we're in for uh, going forward, which is this idea of really augmented reality taking over a lot of our lives. Um, Today, we're not going to be talking about augmented reality. We're going to be talking about another area of intense interest for me and something that uh, not everyone that knows me through tech actually knows this, but uh, for most of my life, really what I was trying to pursue was a career in music. And I was always in bands, in acapella groups, started uh, an acapella group in college, um, pursued a solo career in music, put out uh, an album, then formed a band called Love and Logic, uh, which I did quite seriously for a couple of years. And the person that I'm talking to today, her name is Marissa DeVito. She was a big part of that throughout the years. Um, She was the manager of my band, Love & Logic. She was uh, a co-founder of the co-ed acapella group, Voice Stream, that we started at Ithaca College. Uh, One of our other co-founders is Simon Baumer, also not coincidentally, co-founder of Maz. And Marissa is one of the people that I've known the longest in my whole life. Uh, We met in elementary school. She currently uh, does brand partnerships at SoundCloud. Prior to this, she worked at Universal Music Group um, in a variety of of different positions and different departments, which she goes into detail on working with artists like Justin Bieber, Big Sean, Rihanna. And she was always on the forefront of digital and social marketing tools, uh, as far as digital distribution, doing early deals with Spotify and RDO, um, really in the forefront of streaming music. 
And before joining Universal, she had her own startup called Umixit, which was an amazing piece of software um, that basically allowed you to get the multi-track recordings of famous songs where you could then remix it yourself. Um, Marissa comes from a long history uh, of music in her family. She is the daughter of the late Don DeVito, who was a personal mentor of mine um, and a well-known figure throughout the music industry, worked with legendary artists like Bob Dylan, Billy Joel, Aerosmith, Bruce Springsteen, James Taylor, Tony Bennett, Carole King. I mean, the list goes on and on. It's just absurd uh, how many amazing musicians um, worked with Don DeVito. And I was fortunate enough to get to know him uh, being a friend of Marissa's. And um, as I pursued my career in music, I mean, there was no one better on the planet Earth to uh, to give me advice and feedback. And uh, our conversation goes all over the place. Uh, we talk a lot about Marissa's career, um, how she really knew what she wanted to do, which was work in the music business uh, and how she was able to pave that path for herself, really uh, creating opportunities by being willing to experiment with new types of technology. Currently, she's senior manager of branded content at SoundCloud. As services like SoundCloud look to expand their monetization strategies, uh, working with brands is a big piece of that. Um, and again, sort of uncharted territory. What does it mean to have, you know, branded experiences uh, when it comes to an audio only internet based platform? And Marissa is the exact sort of person that uh, you want on your team figuring out problems like that. So with that, uh, I should point out that this podcast is hosted on SoundCloud. So you can listen on SoundCloud or your favorite podcast app, wherever you're listening to it now is probably a good place to keep listening to it. And so I would recommend subscribing so that you find out when there are new episodes available. And uh, without further ado, I give you Marissa DeVito, Senior Manager of Branded Content at SoundCloud. So I guess at some arbitrary time we can just start talking. Okay. Cool. Hi. Hey, Paul. What's up, Marissa? You know, stuff, things. Oh, cool. It's been a while since we uh, set up microphones together. It's very true. <laughs> we've we, done it many but, times but, before. Yes, yes. It's definitely something that we've done many times before. Um, that's actually pretty funny. Is it? You may be among one of the most frequent microphone setups <laughs> I've ever done <laughs> in my life because we had voice room, we had love and logic. Like there were multiple phases. You interned at the studio too. Oh my God. There's an infinite amount of microphones. Which actually I'd forgotten about until you, we just started talking about this. I remember one time. Uh, so this is at, at Sony music studios when it was open in here in New York. And, um, I interned for a summer and Marissa was my boss. And 
mostly my job was like to like clean ashtrays and like do nothing that had to do with music, which I still thought was cool. But my like home was in a room called the mic locker. Yep. Which was literally a closet filled with microphones where I just sat there and signed out microphones to people. Waiting for somebody to ask for a microphone. Which may or may not Which may or may not happen. Right. I got to do other cool stuff. I got to like go in and reset the board. Oh yeah. Because they weren't digital. Yeah. So I had well, to like put all the knobs to zero and like all the you know, the EQ yeah, frequencies right. like set to the middle. I think the studio closed in two thousand six. Mm. So this was this was a while ago. Yeah. They might have had a couple of digital boards, but these yeah. these ones were old school. Well everyone but, wanted the analog sound. And also, by the way, referencing that I was your boss, this was also my first job out of college. Yeah, but you so. were you were way ahead of me. <laughs> Uh, you were the boss of the people trapped in the closet. That I mean, and it was literally a closet. It was a room with no windows. Yes. Uh, that we literally sat in until someone called us for some sort of item, and we had to sign it out. And then if some something happened to it, we were responsible for it, or we had to find it afterwards. And I remember, like, there'd be, like, one micro- one fancy microphone that everyone wanted to use that was kept in this really fancy box that would get lost all the time and then we had to go searching all of the rooms for it. Right. That clipboard where people signed just oh wasn't secure enough. No. <laughs> Very low tech now that you're thinking about it. Think like about it shouldn't it. be that hard of a mystery. It's like, oh, that microphone's missing. Who signed it out? Oh, it was Bob. Okay, Bob, where's the microphone? Oh, I don't know. I brought it I brought it back, I swear. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. That's that's how it happened. I remember I had to spray mint flavored spray onto a microphone before Beyonce used it. It was mint-flavored disinfectant spray. Yes, that's right. On the the spit guard. Or the, that's right, on the like the pee popper thing. Yeah. Um, it was, uh, I think it was a Destiny's Child session, not a Beyonce solo session. She did record her first album at Sony Studios, mm. but I don't know when. I don't know, but it was like in her rider or whatever you call it that we weren't mm-hmm. allowed to like see her. Mm-hmm. So I had to like literally duck into like the men's room like a couple of times when someone would be like, she's coming. Yeah. And I'd have to, because I wasn't allowed to gaze upon her. And she was at the studio at the end of the hall and it was like blocked off. Yeah. And they yeah, booked, like, they booked the studios around, around like, it down too. Down to the left and yeah. around. And then, yeah, I set up that mic and then I remember, so there's the spray. I also had to buy like very specific candles for her. Mm-hmm. Um, me, Paul Canetti had to go out and just like buy like a bunch of, just a like a sp- very specific bunch of shit for Beyonce. I wish I remembered this. Um, she had like a certain type of socks that she wanted to wear. And I also had to go. I had to go to all these different stores to get all the different stuff. Because you like, were the intern. And the brands were very specific. It was like a gopher, but like kind of to like a, an absurd extreme. Right. Um, but what was cool is testing that mic. It was so silent in that mm-hmm. booth. Like. I could hear the blood flowing in my ears. Oh, yeah. I mean, that studio, RIP, was so special because so it was on the corner of 54th and 10th. And it was it was like just far away enough from everything. But but you still had access to a lot of stuff and you could create an entire album and never leave that building. There was there was a, the recording studios. There were amazing vocal booths. There was enough room to record an orchestra, and there was also a post house and a video house and a mastering studio. So really, 
the tape, I'm doing air quotes that so you can't see, uh, <laughs> never had to leave the building. Right, and it everything was, could be done. It was there. amazing. Um, you know they they filmed The Exorcist there. Really? Yeah. There's a there is a pool that they filled in. Um, but the Exorcist was filmed there. They used to film uh, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire there. That's it was like a full fledged TV studio too. I don't think I ever knew that because I never like went to like I guess wherever that was. There was one very large studio. Yeah, I remember the, that one right where sometimes it would be set up for like strings or whatever. Yeah, and um, then and then a smaller one. You know what I set up in that room once was a uh, I mic'd a drum kit for John Legend's first like major yeah. label release. And I, no one knew who he was. And I was like, that's a dumb name. I bet that's not his <laughs> real name. John Legend. Who does this like, guy think well, he is? Well, sort of like assholey. Like no one knows. You're not a legend. No one's ever name, met though. you. Is it his real name? I still don't know. Are we allowed to Google things while we're here? I, I, there's no rules in the podcast studio. You should you should take that thing right off airplane mode. And, <laughs> and, and I'll leave it on quiet mode, though. And just go Google. Um, yeah, I just remember I hadn't even heard any of his music. I hadn't heard anything. I was just you know, the session was called John Legend. I was just setting up the the drums and and I was like, what sort of guy calls himself John Legend when no <laughs> one's ever heard of him? You know, but obviously I guess. Oh, no, John Roger Stevens. John Roger Stevens. Now I think it's not unreasonable for him to call himself John Legend. Oh, totally. But, He's really talented. But then it kind of was. He's from Springfield, Ohio. Just a nice Ohio boy who renamed himself Legend and uh, doing pretty well for himself. Yeah, I guess so. Hot uh, wife, cute kid. He's doing all right. A couple of hit singles in there. Um, anyway, that was a very cool time. And then I got to master uh, my album, my solo album That's there, right. with Mark Santangelo. Oh my god! And that was like you know, sort of like a a big moment of coming back to the studio as a client. Oh, that's right. Who you also know. and Mark also went to Ithaca College. Yeah, there's like a whole contingency of us there. Word. Yeah, Love that was Ithaca. That was an awesome job. And then we're in that Facebook group called. I used to work at Sony Music Studios, and all I got for it was this Facebook. group. And now all I have left is this Facebook. Yeah, group, yeah, that's it. Which I started. You started when, the group. Yeah, when like the studio was closing. Oh man, it was when Facebook amazing. groups were like, right, a big thing. Yeah, but people still like it's pretty active. It really is. It's nice. You know. Um, so this is perhaps a good segue into your musical history. Because I would say if there's one through line in all the time I've known you, it's music. Is that fair, fair to say? I think that's extremely fair. There's a lot of sports in there as well, I would yeah. say. Uh, but we really met. In a musical. That's very true. <laughs> you were in fifth grade. I was in fifth grade. You were in third grade. I was supposed to be one of numerous, numerous Indians in Peter Pan <laughs> because <laughs> I... And, and when also, when Paul says music, it's more of the enjoyment of and business end of music than the actual performance of music, although there's a little a slight performance karaoke aspect of it but uh so I was supposed to be one of like they put all the kids that weren't gonna have lines or sing as an Indian and I actually I sprained my ankle or I did I did something playing yeah. sports and um but then I got to be Tinkerbell 
Which meant that I got to be the flashlight <laughs> right. that was Tinkerbell. So to be clear, <laughs> in this elementary school production of Peter Pan, Marissa sat in a chair with her cast right. for whatever ailment it was, and just you controlled the flashlight that was Tinkerbell. I turned the flashlight on and off. And I played Peter Pan. Much bigger role. And so we were co-stars. Right. <laughs> <laughs> the flashlight and the I. The flashlight. And Paul. And that's how, uh, that's how we first met. So I guess it's fitting that we, you know, we started in, in, uh, in that setting. So you come from a musical family, though, is more than fair to say. Yes, very true. Uh, my dad, let's see, he, was, he started out playing the guitar. Um, I believe, I have to go back and remember, I think he bought his first guitar when he was like 10. He saved up his money. It was a Les Paul. That I know. It's really, really heavy. My mom still has it. Um, And he really wanted to be a musician. He's a huge hippie. Very, very long hair, which in the 50s, 60s was cool, but only in like New York, (laughs) not in other places that he traveled. Um, And he was actually, I don't know if you know this, he was in the band The Royal Teens. I did not know. Which... You probably haven't heard of, but their hit was Who Wears Short Shorts. Really? He was not in the band at the time that they had the hit, What? but he was like their guitarist on That's the road so funny. for, I don't know how long. That's amazing. Um, and he literally got the gig because he was walking down the street with his guitar and some guy was like, can you play that? And he was like, yeah. And he's like, come audition for this. Yeah. And he was wearing short shorts. Maybe. Po- <laughs> uh, what? Yellow and pink polka dot short shorts. Um... And then I think he got into, there was some sort of like recruitment program at CBS at the time, um, which is kind of how he got into the more, shall we say, corporate side of the music business, because he realized he, he was not going to be a rock star. <laughs> um, and he started, I think he started in like sports radio or something, but like with CBS and transitioned into this like young executive program. And he ended up being with Columbia Records for 40 years. Unbelievable. Yeah. Um, and just for those that don't know, like who were some of the artists that your dad worked with? So he did A&R for Columbia for 40 years, um, and he was a producer as well on some of the albums. And he worked with Aerosmith and Billy Joel. He worked on some Pink Floyd stuff. Um, I don't know why I'm blanking on other things. Everyone ever. He, wor- he worked with a ton of people and most Johnny Cash. Um, no big deal. Yeah. A easy, lot of big time. Easy to time, forget. <laughs> <laughs> uh, big time Columbia Records artists. Um, I love that story that you've told me about uh, how he would recruit babysitters for you. <laughs> yeah. He was. So I think the best, my favorite story that he used to like to tell was when, I mean, I must have been like five maybe and riding on the, oh, Bob Dylan, left that one out. Um, (laughs) We rode on the tour bus to Jones Beach with Bob Dylan, who was like messing with this five-year-old kid and he bet me a quarter that he could not, or sorry, that he could play the guitar and the harmonica at the same time. And I was like, there's no way. You need two hands to play both of those things. Blah, blah, blah. And then he whips out the, I don't even know what it's called. Harmonica. Holder, holder thing. Like the retainer thing. 
Right. It looks like it looks like a like a night night guard. Is that yeah. what those are called? I don't know. Uh, and I was like blown away. And then we actually get there, and something happened. And like I'm like walking in with Bob, and my dad's behind us, and they stop my dad at the door, and he's like, "Oh, and like that's my daughter with Bob. Like, if they let me in." And they were like, "Yeah, sure, buddy." <laughs> like, what are you talking about? And he's like, "Oh no, like I work for I work for Sony." Um, you got to let me in. And he pulls out, I think Sony had just bought CBS at the time. This is like late eighties, mid eighties, something like that. Uh, and he pulls out his CBS. He pulls out the like opposite ID of what he just said. And they're like, the guy won't even look at, look him in the eye anymore. So, and there's no cell phones. So this just, is the eighties. You're on the other side. So his, you know, five-year-old daughter is off backstage with, Bob Dylan and God knows who else. And apparently he eventually does something and gets backstage. And apparently I'm serving drinks to (laughs) Bob Dylan and like some boxer or something. (laughs) And I was totally fine, but I think he was a little freaked out and was like, we're not gonna tell your mother about this for a while. Oh my God. That is so awesome. (laughs) Um, It's ridiculous. I feel like there's so many stories like that. I've, I've heard over the years and it's funny now as an adult because the most amazing thing is your dad would give me advice mm-hmm. on like my music and uh, I t- like sort of understood how insane that was at the time but like also just you know like in high school and college like I don't know I just didn't have like a broad enough perspective to really understand sure. you know and now looking back on it I'm like that's insane you know, like that he would take the time. He always listened to my demos. He always like really gave me like in-depth, really tangible, practical feedback, good or bad, mm-hmm. you know, like on everything I did probably for a good 10 year span in there. Yeah. Well, and I think that was one of the things that was so special about him because he did. That. I mean, he did that for you, but he did it for a lot of people. And whether it was like like Dave Alterescu, um, just advising him on like a music business path. And he was the like head of marketing at Spotify for like years and he just, or something what's like the that. Name of the company? Sure the he title. just moved now to this like podcasting platform. I saw it on LinkedIn. I don't remember. Yeah. I forget the name of the company. Um, but yeah, right. he's doing great. He was at Verizon for a little while. Yeah. Um, I remember this story is just sticking out to me. Your dad told me I was, when we were putting together like a demo. I don't know when this was. I feel like it was when I was working maybe on some solo stuff and, and this was like when you sent out physical demos, mm-hmm. you know, um, and uh, and so, you know, it was like a folder and like a headshot and lyric sheets and a bio and a CD and whatever. And he was telling me that he had some policy where I guess his like, assistant at work would sort of go through all the unsolicited demos, mm-hmm. the people that just sent random stuff to him, which was a lot of people. And he couldn't listen to all of them. Right. Um and so that was another piece of advice he gave me, by the way, which was just to know somebody. He's like, it doesn't matter if it's the janitor. Like if right. someone gets a personal, hey, like, can you listen to this? Like an A&R person will listen to it. If you just send it in cold, it's a low chance. Well, but- it's also, it's a time thing, but it's also like a legal thing because then you could send in, somebody could say, you know, there's a hit, some hit song on the radio and be like, oh no, I, I sent you a demo of that track three years ago oh, interesting. you owe me blah 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 and like i mean this is also back in the day when i think the 
the logging of these things was not yeah, as sophisticated. Yeah, it'd be hard to prove either way, I right, guess. Right, um, But then they probably have to settle. So he told why. me that his assistant, I guess, would pick out, I don't know if it was one a week or or some with some frequency, like like um, she or, or he would pick the one that like they liked the best to pass on mm-hmm. to your dad. And... Um, and that often it was the one that just like stood out from the literal pile. Right. And he said it, the fav- his favorite one he ever got, it was like attached to a wiffle ball set. Which we still have. You do? My mom's Oh my God. It. And it said in big letters, it's a hit. Yep. And he always told me that. And it just like totally, totally changed my whole approach. Because I was like, wait, like I can physically make this stand out among the other yep. demos and and there's a better chance of someone actually putting in my CD over someone else or whatever. But then the funniest part of the story is I was always like, oh, so like, did you sign them? And he's like, no, it's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> the music still has to be good. But, I, but, but like, I still remember that to this day. Oh, my God. Yeah, me too. And, and yeah, my mom still has the wiffle ball oh my God. and that. Oh, my God. That's so funny. But like the, this, did it's you watch um, The Defiant Ones on HBO? No, but I know oh that my I God. need to. First of all, you will... Love it. But, you know, it basically follows like Jimmy Iovine and Dr. Dre and whatever. Mm-hmm. And like me and Jess watched it. And the whole time I was actually thinking like they just need to make this about Don DeVito because it's like <laughs> like it's the same. You just don't even understand like as they go through and Jimmy Iovine, like I vaguely knew sort of what he did. But then it's like every artist ever. And it's like, oh, he worked with them. Oh, he did that. Oh, he did that. And it's like the same thing. Right. You know what I mean? It's like like to have a track record like that is just, we were always telling him that he needed to write a book and he never did. And I think there's like writings somewhere. Yeah. Um, and I know he did some dictation stuff and he wrote some things down and there's things in email, but it's definitely not organized. Right. Um, right. That's a whole, a whole project. Right. But, um, and it's and honestly, it's you know he passed away six years ago now, and it's kind of it's getting harder to actually remember these the stories, which is kind of sad. Yeah, but there's definitely ones that stick out, and there's obviously ones that when I that I was there or you know happened when I was older that I remember. Right, and the better. different people that knew him and sure. you know, but it's also funny. It sounds like you guys keep a lot of the memorabilia. Mm-hmm. It's it's so funny now in the digital age, like there wouldn't be as much like stuff to have around to sort of spark those memories. Well, I mean, he has, we, I mean, we have Pink Floyd sponge pigs and all of these like leather jack, like letterman jackets from things. I mean, that's the other part of it is record labels used to have a lot more money and would just make all of these promo items, right. To promote a record leather jackets, Giant sponges. Giant uh, sponges. What? There's like, I mean, I love cr- crazy amounts of t-shirts. Well, I, I love the idea exactly that you have like real like like Pink Floyd memorabilia from like the 70s and 80s, and then you have like Love and Logic t-shirts sitting there. I do. I, I actually have a whole bag for I know, you. you. Keep telling me about it. Uh-uh. Um, so it's interesting. You say record labels used to have a lot of money, almost implying that today they don't. Uh, they do not, Paul. Um, and so it's getting better, you know, we'll, we'll sort of get to the present day, but moving sort of towards your trajectory. So obviously you grew up in this very musical household and not just musical in the musicy way. It should also be noted that your brother is like a crazy successful musician. Also true. James um, DeVito, Anamanaguchi, 
Look it up. It's the craziest music ever. Also cool lighting things if that you he does that I don't understand how to explain love, to anybody. Like rock and electronic music, but also sounds that come from Super Mario Brothers. Then it's a pretty good way of describing it. You will really, really, really like Anamanaguchi. Um it's really hard to say. Anamanaguchi. It's almost like if you say it faster, it's easier. Yeah, totally. It's hard to say slowly. Anamanaguchi. No, you're pretty good at it slowly as well. <laughs> <laughs> um, I've been saying it for a long time. So in college, if I'm remembering correctly, you created your own major. I did, which, so Ithaca College has a music school and has a business school. But at the time, they did not have a music business program. Do they now? I think they do now. Oh. Um, and I think actually the plan that I created was used to start it. So basically, there's a, a program called Planned Studies that the Humanities and Sciences School had, which basically meant you could petition to create a major at the school that didn't already exist. Hmm. So you had to say, you know, this doesn't already exist at the school. This is why it should exist. This is why I want to take these types of classes. Um, and here's a sample um, course curriculum. So, because I originally started, I went to Ithaca, I knew it was a good communication school, um, and I actually got recruited to play softball there, which was one of the main reasons that I just I decided to go there. But then I didn't really know what I wanted to do, and I think I, I think I knew I wanted to go into the music industry because of my dad. But I was eighteen; I don't know anything, so I started off as a psych major because I thought it was interesting, and it is. But then the more more and more classes I took, I was like, "This is getting really hard." There's like neuroscience, and I was like, "I don't." No, like, and I'm not going to do anything with this. Like, yes, it's very interesting to know how, like, the human mind works and yada, yada, yada. But, like, this is, there's no way this is going to be my job. So um, I started looking into becoming a, a communications student. But then none of the, those majors really intrigued me either because it was, like, there's an engineering degree. There was, like, an audio focus or, or TV focus or things like that or film and TV um, or PR or whatever. And I was like, no, like I want to do, I want to work at a record label. That's right. what I want to do. Um, none of these satisfy that. So I basically grabbed a bunch of classes from the business school, a bunch of classes from the music school, um, and a bunch of classes from the communication school to like futz this together. And it totally worked. They let me do it. I think I, my actual degree is in entertainment, entertainment industry studies. Because the music school wouldn't let me use the word music. The business school wouldn't let me use the word business. <laughs> so I had to like make something else up. Um, and it's funny because whenever anyone asks me what my degree's in, like entertainment industry studies, which sounds made up because it is. <laughs> Literally. Literally, it is. And it's a, it's a bachelor of science, which I also think is funny, especially because Alex, my husband, has a degree in biology undergrad, but his is a BA. So we've like swapped degrees. Yeah. None of that makes sense. Um, but yeah. And it was honestly, it was a really, really great experience because I actually got to learn all of these different things in all of these different contexts. And I think it actually really helped. It's really cool. Um, I think I mentioned to you that I recently w was asked to be in this like Ithaca College anniversary Oh, the 125th video. anniversary. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, 
And one of the things actually that they were asking me about was, you know, do you think that Ithaca College was a place where you could sort of explore what interested you and where you could, and, and I totally think, you know, both For sure. academically and the way that they encouraged extracurricular mm-hmm. stuff and made it easy to start organizations and whatever, like, um, and so this is like totally part of that where it's like, like how cool is that? No really? major you like here, make one up. Right, exactly. Yeah. Like we've got something for everyone because you can literally do whatever you want. I assume uh, they still have it. Yeah, and it's cool because you know the things you wanted to learn were actually buried there in the school. It was just not all in one department. Right. It was harder to get into classes, but I did have I had a very good advisor who actually ended up being the advisor for IC Voice Stream, the co-ed acapella group mm. that Paul and I started together. Um, so it, it worked out. Shout out to Wenmouth Williams. <laughs> exactly. Um, I think it worked out the best way that it could. And it is like, it's a conversation piece on my resume cause it does look weird. Well, and it's just also like you, whatever studied music entertainment studies, was it? Entertainment industry studies. Entertainment industry studies. And then you went into the entertainment industry. So like, right. you, it's not only that you, that you studied it cause you thought it was cool. Right. You, like you said, you wanted to work at a record label and then you went on to work at record labels. Right. I did uh, a bunch of internships. Well, actually when I graduated, I thought I wanted to be an engineer, which is why I worked at the studio and then, which was awesome. And I loved it. And I got to work on all the sessions at AOL, which I don't think is a thing anymore, but like, you know, I spent 22 hours in a row with green day and that was really cool. Um, and, and stuff like that. But I just realized it was not the lifestyle that I wanted. I really liked seeing the sun, <laughs> um, hanging out with my friends. I knew I wanted to have a family someday. And I was like, this is not the career path that I want to go down. And timeline wise, when did you mix it come into the picture? Because I didn't really realize it at the time. But you are the first person that I knew that had a tech startup. That's really funny and probably true. So I think I was still in college or was finishing up college when the idea first started. And it was really me and James, my brother, asking my dad. Because actually, I think a lot of it had to do with the acapella groups. Because a lot of it was that I wanted these, and I'll go back and explain what UMix it actually was. Um, we wanted the separate, the instruments separated out. So you could listen to the bass line or the guitar riff or um, different harmonies or whatever. And my dad was basically like, well, that's not a thing. And like, no one's going to give it to you. Right, because once the the final track is produced, that's the only thing that once everything's mixed together, that's, that's what you get. So James and I kept being like, well, why not? Like, why can't we have access to this? So we kind of dabbled in it. And I think my dad did some asking around and I guess this is like early two thousands. Um, cause it was while I was working at the studio cause I actually quit the studio to focus on you mix it full time. Right. So what it ended up being was a CD extra that contained mixing software with the actual music stems, the instruments broken out, already contained in that software. So you could adjust the volume, you could change the EQ. It was using Cakewalk, 
software, which I don't even know if they're still around. But it was like a custom flavor. Right. So it'd be like, I think there was like an eight track version and a 16 track version. Um, and it would be certain. So it would, it's not all, I mean, songs have dozens, if not hundreds of tracks, depending on what kind of music it is. Um, so it'd be, it would be a, the opposite of stripped down version, <laughs> a combined, more combined version. Yeah. Like maybe you'd have one track, which was all the drums or one track, which was right. all the backing vocals or right. something. Exactly. Instead of eight different backing vocals. Right. Or, or each individual drum on the drum kit. Right. Right. Um, and you could essentially mess with it. It was karaoke, it was karaoke on crack. Um, and we had some success and it, this was at a time where I think iTunes had just launched, iTunes launched in like 2000. Yeah, but not the iTunes store, just like iTunes. iTunes being on your, when did the iTunes store launch? Mm. Around then. Somewhere. But this was on CDs. Right. Digital music was like starting to be a thing. Yeah. And I think as much as the industry didn't see what came uh, coming, they still were like, we need to put more value into these disc things. Right. Um. So we had some success and a lot and a lot of it was due to my dad getting our foot in the door. We had we got Billy Joel to be involved. It was on the his box set. Um it was on a Joe Perry album. It was on a David Banner album, um, which is one of the cooler things we did. We partnered with Webster Hall because they had a dance label, which it was perfect for um doing because doing dance remixes. Um so it was pretty, pretty interesting. And I think honestly. I think we were maybe a little before our time Um, because we tried then we tried to transition into the digital age. And I guess this is now around like 2009 and trying to like we were talking about like doing like Facebook apps when that was a thing. Mm -hmm. And we had a guy that said that he could do all this stuff for us. He ended up not doing all of it. And it just kind of fizzled out and you know things are expensive it's a really really hard thing to do because not only did you need the software itself that you know and to get that all set up but you needed all the partnerships mm. in other words you had to get the tracks and you had to actually be included like that data had to be written onto the physical discs and then moving into like a cloud environment then it's like but even the rights management, I oh, just can't imagine. Oh, it's a legal nightmare. And who was working on it at the time? So we had a lawyer on our team, but then all of the, I mean, I was doing a lot of the software input, like importing all the tracks, typing out all the lyrics because there was a karaoke feature. Um, I mean, we were, it was me, my brother was in college, so like he was in and out. Uh, my dad, we had a lawyer, we had a rights guy. I think that was it. There were not a lot of people. It's insane. It's seriously insane. I mean, the fact that we were able to do what we did is completely crazy. I remember, I mean, I, I can picture it like perfectly, everything about it. And um, it was really, really cool because it was a relatively new thing um, where you could have a music CD because there was data CDs and there were music right. CDs. And then you right. could have a music CD that had data on it. So if you the put dual it, disc. That, right. And so if you put it in the CD-ROM of your computer, mm-hmm. you suddenly had access to right. to that. And I mean, I'm sure you've thought about it a lot more than I have, but I think 
in a weird way, you were too early, but you were also too late. Like, yeah, it was you were, and you couldn't have known this, but it was like right at the crux. Like mm-hmm. if it had been a little earlier when CDs ruled supreme or if it had been a little later when digital ruled supreme. Right. But it was like right in the it was right in the crossfade, if you will. Oh, um, nice. Between term. the two, which I think made it a particularly hard time to navigate, considering that you were just like some kid like fresh out of college like trying to like launch this whole business right and luckily I mean I wouldn't there's no way I would have been able to do it without my dad getting our foot in the door and honestly Cameo Carlson who then after you mix it crash and burn actually hired me um, along with the help of our friend Jessica Bayless um, but you're right it was just it was just the wrong it was a very very cool concept completely at the wrong time because anyone that saw it was like, Oh, this is really, really cool. Oh, this will help us sell albums. But whenever, especially when consumers saw it, they're like, what other songs do you have? And we're like, well, we only have like 12 songs that you know, but it's, it also was sort of paving the way for this whole DJ producer culture, which, you know, if you skip another 10 years ahead to where we are now is, it's all about breaking down these tracks and right. all about remixing and, and you know, taking a little bit of this and a little bit of this and throwing your own drums on something. Ironically, now, not the multi-tracks, although some of those are there too, but those remixes end up on SoundCloud. Right. So it's very weird that that's now where I work. <laughs> <laughs> and, we do, and we do remix contests where we have to get the stems. Um, and people are using their own software. We're not providing software. But yeah, it's funny how how full circle it's come. Yeah, that's wild. So we'll get to SoundCloud, but (laughs) from you mix it, where do you go next? So I went to UMG with Cameo and Jess Bayless. Universal Music Group. Universal Music Group, working for Universal Motown Republic Group, which is not a thing anymore. Republic and Motown are things, but not together. and basically what it was, was this was, so this is 2010-ish, um, when digital marketing was starting to become a thing, and Facebook was still pretty new, um, and basically the labels were like, all right, we need to get on this digital thing, and I think iTunes had, I, iTunes had launched maybe in like 2008, 2009, because Cameo was part of it. Mm. Um, and like, all right, we need to get on this digital music thing. So they started hiring out all of these digital marketing experts, companies that had popped up, right? But they were spending so much money. So they were like, well, if we're going to spend all this money, why don't we have an in-house team and we'll have two real employees and two contractors. And there'll be an employee and a contractor that work on Urban and an employee and a contractor that work on Pop and Rock. Bayless and I were Pop and Rock. Bayless was the real employee and I was the contractor. Um... And honestly, it was completely crazy, but it was a lot of fun because they called it new media because they didn't know what it was yet. Um, And we could kind of, within reason, kind of do what we wanted, just come up with these crazy ideas. E-cards were a big thing. And we'd like get the, we had a whole design team at our fingertips and be like, oh, we want this. There was this cataract song. One of the lines was, um, we were doing a Valentine's Day thing. And one of the lines was, it was some pickup song. Your daddy must have been a drug dealer. And the girl goes, why? And the answer is, because you dope. (laughs) 
And I thought it was like the funniest thing ever. And I was like, how is this not a Valentine's Day card? So that was like one of my prouder moments of working at UMRG. You should you should be proud. <laughs> it a, was pretty key, great. Key but like those were the kind of things we did because it was kind of the Wild West. There was no standard because it was new. And and what were your qualifications at that time to do that new media marketing? I knew stuff about the music industry and it, well and music blogs were a big thing. Getting placements on music blogs was like the thing. And big, big blogs, little blogs. I mean, Pitchfork wasn't as big as it is now. Like, those types of things. And we'd pitch um, interviews. It was because it was a lot of, like, digital press, too. Yeah, yeah. Right? Like, email interviews or, like, phone interviews. We'd have press days. Because, like, the real PR people weren't, weren't going to deal with this, like, right. well, because the- blog that got, like, a thousand views a month or whatever it was. The, the reason I ask about the qualifications is because we were talking before about... Um, you listen to the episode with Stephen Tardick, mm-hmm. um, also an early digital marketer. Right. And he was saying in that conversation that like his main qualification was that he was like young and knew what social media was. And like basically, yeah, I and, used Facebook. Right. And, and that it, I knew about the Twitter. And it's so interesting that this big corporation understands that there's this new type of media they know so little about it that they literally just call it new media because they don't right. even know what the actual label is. And they basically bring in people that, that you know, you're right. You weren't coming from a traditional PR background yeah. or traditional marketing background. Um, but instead you had obviously a lot of general knowledge about the music industry and about music and, and understood sort of these emerging technologies. Right. Um, and I just think that that's like, fascinating to reflect on and to think about that also in the future tense like the things that will be big let's say 10 years from now like if you want to hire for those things today you're not going to find someone with sort of a formal background or formal education in whatever those things are because it doesn't exist yet yeah exactly exactly that's really weird to think about and you're totally totally right well, and, and again, it was awesome because like, yeah, we were, we were the ones doing it. No you one, invented no one else, that. Basically. And now people do it, but because you were the ones and, and your counterparts at all the different labels and all the different companies, right. like figuring out what that was. Right. And I think it was something like we ended up saving the company like a million dollars and it was a huge thing. They shut it down anyway, but did they? <laughs> they did. It was like I right after I left. It wasn't new media anymore. They were like, oh, this is just media. I think they decided, well, they decided that it needed to be its own position at actually at the labels because we see. were like kind of on the side, but it was fun. Yeah, that's, that's amazing. I remember that period because that's when Bayless and I were roommates for at least oh, part right. of that. So I was always getting sort of the the downloads of the but day. Yeah. And I mean, listen, like I, I still know some stuff about digital marketing, I guess, but there's no way I could get a digital marketing job now. Like I, I barely know how to use Snapchat. <laughs> I'm more of an Instagram stories kind of gal. Mm, mm, Although I do accidentally post mm. things all the time before I'm ready. That, that's uh, <laughs> I think they do it that way on purpose to make you post more. Um, so what are you doing now? So, so after UMRG, I got hired at Universal Distribution, um, being a field marketing rep because they wanted someone that knew some stuff about digital. Um, and that kind of meant, 
This is pre-Spotify. This is on the upswing of iTunes. Um, but still, while brick-and-mortar stores were still pretty big, um, and they were doing a lot of in-stores. So a lot of my job was actually running in-store events um, for Island Def Jam, um, doing like in-store signings, getting booklets for Newberry Comics that were like add-ons when you bought the album to try and boost like first week sales. And just as like a snapshot, like who were some of the artists on Island Def Jam at the time? So it was Justin Bieber. Um, my Darkest Days, I believe. Um, oh man, Big Sean was just coming out. It was like his first album. The lead singer of Fall Out Boy had a solo album. Patrick Stump. Yep. Um, we worked that. I'm like picturing the album covers in my head is how I'm trying to figure <laughs> this out because now this was a while ago. And like, and like, Prego Brain is in full effect right now. Um, <laughs> It was, I mean, it was a lot of, a lot of big artists and a lot of developing artists, but it didn't matter where you landed on the spectrum because we worked everything. Um, and that was a lot of fun actually, because I got, I got to travel, I got to do cool, like out of the box marketing things, um, and try and come up with like cool, like promo ideas, um, which was really fun. So at some point, you started liaising with Spotify and I mean, Spotify had to exist first at some point <laughs> right? and iTunes and all of the sort of distribution points. So that was the next job. So after working for distribution, um, cause we worked with the labels pretty closely. Um, IDJ was, I don't remember. Something happened. And um, Russell Fink, who was the head of digital sales at the time, uh, was able to hire, oh, I remember now, um, had a position open. And he was like, I, I know you're, we've worked together a little bit. I know you're really, really well liked. Um, I want you to come work with me. And I was like, cool. What, like, what am I doing? And he's like, well, basically all of the digital accounts except for iTunes. I know this is like Spotify just started. RDO was still a thing, Rhapsody. Um, mobile, like ringtones and stuff oh, yeah. was still kind right. of a thing. Um, so I was like, well, that sounds new and interesting. I'll go do that. And what it actually was, was they had decided to consolidate the Island Def Jam sales team with the Republic Records sales team and create this shared services group. Um, so it was basically the two of us doing digital sales for three record labels, which was bananas. So for some like understanding of scale, like how many total artists ballpark across those three labels are we talking? So their rosters, full, full roster, each of them, maybe like a hundred each. But they're not all active at the same time. Sure. But, but you'd be putting out between singles, EPs, remix bundles, and actual albums. Between the three labels, you could be putting out at least like 20 things a week, if not more. It's insane. 
it was completely nuts. And I and my job was to pitch these things for placement on the various digital retailers. So getting all the information from the product managers to say, oh, you know, this this single is climbing the charts at alternative radio. Um, they're gonna be on the Tonight Show on two, like Tuesday before release, whatever, whatever, right? And keeping all of that organized and then making sure it actually happens because then the label's gonna be mad. Um, but it was really interesting and I learned a ton and especially, cause I started working on Spotify maybe, and maybe it was like a year old in the US and seeing it go from like literally pulling teeth to get people to make playlists on it or to approve of doing anything with them to see the juggernaut that it is now is completely insane. I remember hearing a lot about this sort of phase of your time um, there because I guess this overlapped with when you were managing Love and Logic. Correct. Uh, and then you also were, went on to manage John Sandler, who then started the band Great Good Fine Okay, which is like doing insane things He's right now. kicking ass and taking names right now. Uh, sounds like you had a pretty demanding, like, real job. So yeah. I never asked you at the time, but like, how <laughs> did you do that? Like, how did you take on like side gigs managing multiple bands? That's a great question. And I have also, no idea. You didn't have children. I did not have children. <laughs> My boyfriend right? didn't live the, here. Imagine all the time we used to have before we were married and had kids. It's so, like, but it's so true. Like, like I don't have time. Like, like, what did I do all? We rescheduled all night this and like all four times. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> but like. I don't know, cause I mean, I, I mean, I spent a lot of time with you guys. Yeah, you were. I mean, you were with us all the time. We were in meetings. We were in the studio. We were on tour, like playing games. I think some of it. My timeline's totally messed up. Some of it was definitely when I was at UMRG when I was a contract, and it was like hourly. So I was like, I'm getting out of here. Um, but yeah, you're right. Some of it was, cause it was while that I did all of these things. Yeah, it was over multiple years. I just, I I believe it overlapped because I remember hearing about right. what you were doing there and, and it was interesting for us because we were trying to distribute onto some of those stores right. and still trying to figure out like where, you know, the, the weird thing about the sort of love and logic age, um, you know, because the music industry changed so quickly mm -hmm. and then changed again and changed again and continues to change. Um, just like we were talking about you mix, it was sort of at this, like, you know, like crossfade, you know, crossfade. There was another crossfade right around, you know, sort of the 2008, nine, 10 era where, um, you know, streaming was starting to, to come in a little bit, but it was also like social, like we were like, right. You know, documenting our time at the studio on like a point and shoot camera, then connecting it to our computer. Oh my God, you're downloading right. the videos, putting them on YouTube, uploading them to YouTube, as opposed to if it had been just a couple of years later, that would have been Instagram or Snapchat or something right. like much more real time, Periscope, whatever. Right. You know, um, and so we were, we obviously like did well on in the early days of YouTube, but that was. To do that took like a lot of production mm -hmm. as opposed to now. Yeah. Like, can't you just imagine like Darren and Annie just like 
being like Instagram stars, you oh, know, if absolutely. that had been a thing. Yeah, it's funny to think about kind of the timing of everything because even just like, I mean, the videos that you guys made were amazing and they still live on YouTube and they're still amazing, yeah. but it would have been more amazing if it was now or even like a year or two ago. Yeah, or if we'd just been creating one like every day instead of like every three or four like, months or right, whatever it was. Right, because it took so long in production. But right. you're right, like doing like silly Instagram stories or things like that. But the the tools literally didn't exist. Right, or we post on Facebook Live, we had to wait until we were like home to go on our computers. Like it's you're just right. weird. Like we had smartphones... But they I don't know, it was just, it was different, like, you know. It, um, well, it was a different. Like, the, it, was, it was right around when Maz was getting started. Mm. And I remember, I mean, when we started in mid-2010, um, the iPad had just came out and the iPhone had already been out for a couple of years, but still people didn't really use it. Not the way they do the now, way for they sure. Do now. Like, none of the social stuff was really big. Nobody read on the iPhone, which is mm-hmm. funny. Like people didn't consider it a reading device or a, or a really like consumption device. It was more about like make a phone call, send a text message. You still use it like a phone. Use the calculator. Like there was, you know, you, if you needed to check your email, um, but you would probably check your email and then be like, all right, back to that when I'm at a computer. Yeah. I still do that because I'm old. It depends what it is. (laughs) If it's long, I'm going to wait till I'm at a computer. (laughs) You know what I do? I've started sending drafts to myself to see what it looks like receiving it on a phone for external things yeah yeah like if i'm sending someone an email like it looks perfect on my computer but then i'm like chance are this person's gonna get it on their phone oh that's interesting And so i look to see what it's like on the phone I'm like oh it seems really long on a phone even though on the computer it seems fine so then Mm -hmm. i'll like edit it down so it's like mobile optimized email because think (laughs) about i i i receive every email first on my phone even if i do wait to respond to it sure like, so, so does everyone else that I'm writing to. Right. You know, um, anyway. No, that's really funny. And actually as a sidebar, I think all the stuff that you and Steven talked about with like email and calendars and like organizing your lives was super interesting and like even more interesting because I know both of you, but like. So true. And just so spot on. He's so ridiculous that he has like his friends as recurring like reminders. Like that was my favorite. Text Paul. Right. Be sure to say hi to this person. (laughs) And we're all at different frequencies. (laughs) Right. 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 Well, and my favorite thing, like while I was listening, I was like, should I do this? Yeah, I know. I was was thinking the same thing. I was was like, like, right. Um, Anyway. So, so it's interesting. So basically you were on the label side interacting with these different sort of digital, I don't know what you call them, stores. Digital service providers, digital DSPs. Digital service providers, got um, it, got it. Um, and now you are one. Right, so I essentially, so I was doing that for like four or five years at Universal at various labels, and the labels kept changing because that's what they do. They merge, they unmerge, um, people shift around, they change roles. Um, and I've been doing it for a while and I enjoyed it, but it was like, it was a little stagnant. Um, and this opportunity came up. I got completely cold called or cold LinkedIn messaged from SoundCloud and like, Hey, we have an opportunity. Do you, would you like to chat? And I was like, 
sure, I'd like to chat. That sounds great. And yeah, basically it was the opposite, or I guess the other side of what I'd been doing at the labels. It was a label, label relations rep for a major label. Do you watch Stranger Things? Yes. It, it was the upside down. <laughs> it was, right. It was completely the upside down. You got it. Um, and yeah, I mean, the more, so I, I talked to the recruiter and it sounded great. And then I met with like 80 other people because that's how tech companies hire people. Um, and this was also before Universal had actually signed a deal with SoundCloud. Oh, interesting. It was like three months before. And like, and I knew it was imminent because I worked at Universal. <laughs> exactly. um, and actually, I was on the down low talking to the SoundCloud, like the right. SoundCloud account rep. If SoundCloud was smart, they would have been like, we want you to come, but first, stay at Universal. <laughs> right, right. Stay, like, we're really, like really nice. Month. Can you make this happen? Right. And then come. Um, and kind of being like, so when is this going to launch? And like, what? Like, what do you think about all of these things. Yeah. Um, and it was great. So I started there the beginning of 2016. Um, and this is when SoundCloud was still SoundCloud. They hadn't launched the subscription service yet, or we hadn't launched, I guess. Um, Universal wasn't signed yet. Sony wasn't signed yet. Warner had been on for like a year and a half, but they were the only major that was involved. Um, and it's been really great. It's a fantastic company to work for. Everyone's really, really nice. Um, it's really fun. I did so. I so I did labor the labor relations thing for about a year, I think. Um, and what's interesting is that SoundCloud is not Google, is not Spotify, is not iTunes. So it's pretty small. Um, so everyone on the label, or I should say, the content relations team kind of was liaising with another group within SoundCloud, whether that's marketing, um, partner tools, which is pretty much exactly what it sounds like, the tools that are created for partners, um, royalties and reporting, things like that. So I got assigned to work with brand partnerships, um, which, to be honest, I didn't know anything about, um, which basically meant, so SoundCloud has three different subscription, consumer subscription offerings. There's one that's free to the user, which is ad-supported. There's a mid-level that's $4.99 a month that is feature-based, where there's no ads and you can offline sync. And then there's the $9.99 version, which you get the no ads, offline sync, and access to all this premium content. So the other two levels, you don't get to listen to Beyonce and Adele, or honestly, whatever the label's choose to put only in premium. Um, but the point of me saying this is there are ads on SoundCloud. So in some of those ads, normal banner ads, audio ads, things that you see other places, but one of the things that's very unique to SoundCloud is we'll actually turn those turn tracks or playlists into ads by rebranding them. Now, it's a bit of a complicated process because we actually need permission to do that. Um, so I help facilitate that with the content team and the brand partnerships team. Um, and that ended up at the end of last year, my boss decided like you can't handle being a label relations person and doing this on the side because the brand partnerships team has started to sell more things. Um, it's two jobs. Which one do you want? Which was awesome that she left it up to me. 
Um, so I decided to kind of go in this different direction of doing branded content. Um, and it's been really interesting. I'm learning a ton about the ad industry, which is completely insane. Yes. Maybe more insane than the music industry. Which is saying a lot. Which is saying a lot. Um, but it's, it's great. They drive me crazy, but it's great. And it's interesting that you joined SoundCloud before it had all those paid products and, so, and or maybe it was like starting. I don't know exactly. The, the ads timeline. had been around, I think for like a year before that, but they were few and far got between. Got it. Got it. Like very, very few and far between. Like I feel like and a lot the, has happened at SoundCloud in the time that you've been there. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, a, a lot has happened in the past. I guess it's almost two years. Um, ads existed, but we call them native or like custom ads mm -hmm. when there's a, like when it's a promoted track from an artist. Right. But they were few and far between because they had to be a partner with SoundCloud and SoundCloud didn't have that many partners. So what does it mean to have a promoted track? Does the, does the music change? No, the music doesn't change. Basically we swap out the album artwork and there's a, um, a visual that goes under the waveform um, that we swap out and it's like branded with the Sprite logo. Got it. So it's like this track brought to you by Sprite. Right. And then it's promoted in your stream, kind of, which is kind of like your Facebook feed right, yep. or your Twitter feed. Um, and it's, it's actually, it's, so it's an ad. It is an ad, but it's a really unobnoxious ad. There's yeah, a little like well green arrow that says promoted by Sprite, by Sprite. And it's like the logos on the album artwork and you kind of see it on your phone. So how is it working at a tech company after all of these years on the entertainment industry side? So I had a lot of fun. It was really, really interesting. I met a lot of really, really wonderful people, but it's a lot nicer being on the tech side. There's a lot more perks. Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, and especially honestly, like having a family is a lot easier. And granted I had my son when I was still working at the label. Um, but it's a lot, it's a much easier lifestyle. I feel more taken care of. I feel more supported in my career at a tech company because there's more, at least at SoundCloud, and SoundCloud is the only tech company I've worked for, but from the gist that I get of working at other tech companies, there's like a set path for promotions. There is a set path for salary review. There's, they feed you. Thing, you know, things, things like that, that I feel like a lot of other, especially entertainment companies take for granted because people just want to work there because it's cool. And it was cool. And I loved it. And I mean, and I wouldn't give back that time for anything. And it definitely got me where I was. But it's a my work life balance is amazing. Um, I love the people I work with. I'm doing interesting things. It's not a corporate environment, so what's really, really cool is that we can try things, and there's not a lot of red tape, um, and there's no like corporate policies that we have to follow. There's a lot of stuff that we can be like, hey, we want to try this. Okay, get like, you have to give a business case, and it can't cost like a million dollars, but you can still, there's more room to be creative and explore and try things and fail than there was at a big corporation. Yeah, well, I would imagine part of that is just when you have a newer, younger company that, that is just moving fast and figuring out what it is and how it's going to work. And True. 
everything is sort of malleable. Whereas I think one of the really hard things about working at any big corporation in sort of an entrenched industry is that there's a lot of like, well, this is the way it's always been done. Absolutely. And what's interesting is you were always playing on sort of the bleeding edge of a very established industry, right? which is like, you know, so you must have always felt a little bit like, like you were trudging through the, the mud or something, mm-hmm. you know, um, whereas we get our hands slapped all the time. Yeah. Whereas like at a company like SoundCloud, it, it's almost like the, it, it, the ethos itself is sort of like inversed because it's like, totally. Hey, like there's no baggage. There's no history. We just need to like figure this out. Right. I mean, when I started doing all the branded content stuff, there was obviously there are rules in place of what we can use and what we can, how we do things. And the brands want us to do things a certain way, but there was no procedure. Hmm. None. And to my boss's credit, she's like, this is the way we've been doing things, but take this and run with it. However you think it can be better organized, better taught, better whatever, go ahead. And over the past year, year and a half, I've really refined it and it's it's a lot better. It's more organized. There's a lot of Google Docs. Love Google, Google Forms. Docs. There's a lot of um, survey type things to <laughs> fill out. Um, but it works really well and we get we get what we need and the brands are happy and SoundCloud's happy and everything kind of works out and we check off all the boxes and it's it's much better than kind of the ad hoc way that it was happening. Yeah. Well, it's almost before. like your own little startup within a startup. Like, okay, right. here's this thing. We want to do it. Now build it out. Right. Well, and, or, or here's this thing that we're already doing, but we're not doing it well. Like, Do it the way that you want to do it. Right. Um, right. And it's been, it's been really interesting and great. And even just like, and I'm learning new stuff Every day and every every campaign that we work on, there's something that comes out of it. I'm like, oh, you know what? We probably should have done this one thing differently, and we'll do that the next time. Um, and none, of, I mean, and the thing is, is none of it's been, you know, a million dollar mistake or anything that you know caused SoundCloud to shut down. Right. So it's, I guess, that's part of it too. Is because it is what it is. I can actually afford to make those little mistakes and own up to them and be like, all right, I messed up. This is what I'm going to do to fix it. Um, cool. Cool. Uh, so it's been, it's been an amazing learning experience and, and also having the runway allowed by the company and the people I work with and my boss and everything else to just do these things and not be micromanaged and not be told like, no, well this is like you were saying, this is how we we've always done it. So you have to do it this way has just been an amazing learning experience like as a human. Yeah. Well, it sounds like there's just a culture of experimentation Yeah. where you have the freedom to fail because, you know, um, everyone doesn't get spooked when something like goes awry or whatever. And and to me that is, and I I was going to say this is, you know, part of of tech companies. And of course, really big tech companies have the exact same issues that big music companies have. There's a tipping Um, point for sure. It's, it's, but when you're still in this sort of startup phase, which, you know, obviously there's a really big range to what it means to be a startup, but SoundCloud is well established, but still sort of has that feeling to it. Sure. And the whole idea is like, you know, like Facebook's original slogan, like move fast and break things. 
And then they literally had to renege on that eventually because their shareholders were like, wait, don't, don't break anything. Please don't break things. So in a larger sense, um, you know, not specific to SoundCloud or specific to any of the places you've worked, but like the music biz Mm. is in this state of, I don't even know what to call it, uh, limbo to put it mildly. But it seems like it has been for like a really long time. Um, and and it's it, it hasn't like, you know, completely blown up or something like the way everyone said it would. But it also hasn't seemed to have found its way out yet either. And so it's interesting to think about, in other words, like it's so SoundCloud, I consider sort of, you know, on the right side of history when awesome when you, I agree when you are gonna when we're gonna look back at at you know at, at music companies um but even so you're you know I'm sure like in the heyday of your dad's career it was like the activity was to go to over to a friend's house and like put on a record and like mm-hmm. listen to the music and now you're lucky if like the music's on in the background while you're going for a run or something totally like, it was more of a this is a very techy phrase, but it used to be way more lean in and now it's lean back. Mm. Um, and it's, it's just a much more passive experience. Why do you and think that is? I think cause it can, I mean, I think it's a couple of reasons. I think cause a, it can be, and it's, it's just easier for people. And we have so much going on these days. Everyone, you know, you're scrolling through your Facebook feed constantly or Twitter or or whatever. Or SoundCloud feed. Or SoundCloud. Um, but even that, but even if you're listening to SoundCloud, you're probably doing at least one other thing, if not like four other things, whether it's you're writing on the train and you're writing back to emails or you're, I don't know, people rarely now, and I think it's also, I mean, it's a focus thing, right? Because like how often do you, do you even, and you're a music guy, just sit down and listen to music and do nothing else. Very, very rarely. Never. You're you're cleaning your apartment. You're playing with Layla. You're doing something, not just sitting there listening. You know, I feel like this image pops into my head, but like it was like eighties movies where people are just literally like lying on their bed with headphones on, <laughs> listening to a record. Nobody does that. No. You're doing you're doing something else, whether it's a physical activity or something on your or you're playing like Candy Crush on your phone. You're doing something else. Um, but I think it's, so I think that's part of it is that people just aren't really paying attention as much as they used to. Um, but I think it's just like the music industry has gotten away from itself. Like it's a, it's just a crazy runaway train kind of thing. Um, and the artists have more power now than they ever did. And a lot of that is because of the tools that they have, which includes SoundCloud, but it's also... Twitter and YouTube and Instagram and all of these digital social tools where you can, you don't need a label to get your name out there. At least, at least to start, you need, you need a label or people to work for you to get you to that next level. But to get started, you can just record stuff in your basement and post it on SoundCloud and post it on YouTube and tweet it out. And even though it starts in a very small circle of your friends and your parents and your family and whatever, it can rapidly expand. Well, the distribution piece, at least, 
is totally equalized, right? Completely. I mean, for equalized. someone used to work in distribution, it's like there's there's just no barrier at all, right? And so the sort of flip side of that is that the volume goes up. So there's just a lot more content because everybody can do it, and so. You, breaking through becomes harder, exactly. even though it's so easy to get there. Um, and it's the same for video. It's the same for, you know, whatever. This is audio content. Like I host this podcast on, on SoundCloud also. Right. Um, music still holds such like an important cultural position. Absolutely. Like people love music. People love artists. Um, if anything, artists now are more of sort of holistic brands. But then at the same time, I really do sometimes worry about this idea of music as a lean back experience because a lot of times music subscription services are lumped in with, let's say, video subscription services. Mm -hmm. So it's like subscription services are on the rise, like Netflix, Hulu, Spotify, SoundCloud, whatever. Those are different. But they're very, very different because... You you, will sit and watch Netflix and not do anything else. And you really can't do that activity unless you're doing that activity. Right. I mean, people check their phone all the time while watching TV and they're like, wait, what happened? And then they have to rewind. Um, And music isn't like that, you know? And so what does that mean in a larger sense? Is it, is it just sort of like, okay, well music just has a new place in the lives of modern day people and that's okay. Or like, does it, because it's different and serves a different person in one's life, does it sort of require like a different approach from the business side? I think, well, I think artists and labels and I guess in the industry in general are trying to come up with more unique experiences. Um, you know, these like uh, silent discos. And Wait, what is a silent disco? You don't know what a silent disco is? Well, this is? sounds like the opposite of music if it's silent. Well, okay. It's not... Basically, you every a bunch of people go to a place and put headphones on, and everyone's listening to the same thing, but it's quiet in the room. So if you don't have headphones on, you just see a bunch of people dancing to nothing. Right. I mean, sounds amazing. I've not been to one. I just know that these <laughs> exist. I'm a, I'm a parent now. I don't do anything. Um, but things like that are just kind of like, it's not just a concert, which, you know, when we were growing up was good enough or was, or was awesome, <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah. Um, and creating more of these experiential things, whether it's a meet and greet or like going into the studio with an artist or some sort of actual experience that they're, that they're getting people to pay for. I mean, that's kind of, we could go on and on about the like financials of the music industry, but there's all of these things now with the D2C stores, the direct-to-consumer stores, Selling experiences, whether it's a meet and greet backstage at a show or a Skype call or things like that, that normal people wouldn't get to experience and that they'll pay like a few hundred bucks to experience. It's really interesting because when I'm talking to news companies, I actually often say that they should look to the modern music industry as an example Mm -hmm. because... There is this idea that in the olden days, you could monetize every user. We didn't call it monetize. We didn't call it user. <laughs> um, the same way. It was like a one size fits all. Right. You sell a record. People buy the record. They don't buy the record. That's the end. 
like you sell sure. concert tickets, people buy it, they don't, like whatever it is. Um, same thing. But that's in the, the only in the news thing that existed. You, right. You buy a newspaper or magazine subscription, you don't. But the today, I feel like you need to look at each user, maybe not individually, but at least in subgroups where it's like, okay, these people are never going to pay us. Right. So we need to monetize through some sort of advertising or, right. or, or sponsorships or whatever. Then these people will pay something, but it's not that much. And so we just have to get a lot of them. And then it's like, okay, these people are just obsessed with this artist and they'll pay a thousand dollars to come and, and, you know, get to request the song of their choice and sit in the front row. Exactly. Or whatever. Or get their name on a poster. Exactly. Or like, and, or meet them for five seconds backstage at a show and get a, and get a picture. Right. Right. But right, you're right. It is, it's different subgroups of who's willing to do what. And obviously it depends on the artist. It depends on the genre a lot of times um, and things like that. But these, I mean, I'm sure if you've bought concert tickets recently, there's even, there's bundles on the like Live Nation website, Ticketmaster website um, for like a special VIP meet and greet after the show or like. Right bar tat like things like that and it's it's a concrete way for people to make money off of not the music right exactly exactly and and those experiences or whatever you want to call them the idea is that the hope is you could funnel somebody from the person that just like hears it on the radio on day one but eventually they become like a hardcore person and you're also hoping for an extension beyond that, that they, you know, you meet this artist backstage and you post about it on your Instagram or your, or all, all of your socials. And then your friends are all jealous that you got to do this. So then the next time right. you and four of your friends do this VIP meet and greet right. thing. Right. right. So it, and you know, there's more chatter on socials and yada, yada, yada. Like those, the reach is extended beyond that one person's experience and, and you know, maybe I I was just reading this thing about this girl that designed her own Katy Perry outfits, like in Katy Perry inspired, like t-shirts and stuff. She like sewed a bunch of sequins onto things. Um, but like bought VIP meet and greet tickets to the show, got to meet Katie. Katie was like, Oh my God, that's so cool. And like, now it was this whole like viral, like mashable article. So, and that, that's like, you, like you can't buy that kind of publicity, right? It's just this cool thing. And Katie talked to her and wants to like, I don't know, do whatever. But like, those are things that you can't plan for. But now how many kids you think are going to, that make their own Katy Perry t-shirts or want to show Katie, I don't know, something are going right. to ask their parents to spend another couple hundred bucks to get the VIP experience on the witness story. Right, because now they want to show her their t-shirts. Something, because they want to be a mash or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Do you think that that is the model going forward, or is that just the model right now while people try to figure out what the hell they're doing? Like, when you look ahead to the next 10 years, let's say, which is a long view, mm. but you've been doing this a long time, like, how how are we listening to music how are we paying or not paying for music? Like where does music end up sort of settling if, if at all? So I think what needs to happen 
I think communities need to be embraced and whether that's artist communities and people working together to help promote each other or fan communities working together to help promote the artists they're interested in or, or things like that. Um, because I think we live in such a social, well, I was going to say like a social era, but I mean it more in like a social interactions online <laughs> than like yeah, then, than actual social interactions. But well, um, SoundCloud is a social tool. I mean, exactly. Y- you're now seeing sort of copycats, you know, like on, on Facebook live or mm-hmm. other things where you can sort of comment and react and it's, it has to do with like the timestamp. Right. But I mean, SoundCloud was doing that from the beginning well, so a long time ago about how both, in other words, even asynchronously, you are experiencing something with other people along right. the way. Right. And feeling the same thing at the same time right. and being able to express that thing. I always well, comment the same thing on SoundCloud songs, what is which is very rarely, but it's always about a drum fill. <laughs> I'm always like, that was amazing. Like after a wine. That drum deal like, was, was sick. Like, right there. Right. Um, that's like my, which is really that's cool. My go-to. Well, what's interesting, and I know we keep going back to SoundCloud, and obviously that's it's my experience, but um, what's interesting is SoundCloud started out like that. And also, I don't know if you know, you know how SoundCloud actually started, but it was Alex and Eric, our founders, um, are two musicians who were basically sending like beats back and forth and getting like feedback and decided that, and this is 10 years ago. So that was annoying. And so that, that that's why the comment feature is there. So, so they could comment to each other and their friends and whoever else had access to it. Like, you know what? You should really speed it up here at one, instead of saying, instead of sending like an, I got an email, I guess being like, you know, it would really be better if the drop was at a minute 30 instead of a minute 24 you could actually make comments on the track itself. Wow. So that's where it came from. Um, but what's super interesting is that SoundCloud has always had this interactive social piece. And like, remember iTunes had ping? I do. They really tried to have a social network and it crashed and burned. And they, they re- or I guess now it's a couple years ago, they had um, Connect. Yeah. Which Does like, anyone use that? Didn't really do anything. No. Spotify had, a, had the activity feed and being able to send things and like, no one really used it, but SoundCloud still goes strong. And and you're right. It's a lot of these things that Facebook does now, or I mean, has been doing for a while, too. Um, it's the best form of flattery, but I've been told, yes. when Facebook copies you. But, um, but it's really interesting, and I think that's really where you're able to foster a community is where you're going to have the genuine fans that are going to spend money, that are going to do things for you. And I think, I'm going to say this, and I might be totally wrong, but I'll, ma- I'll, make, I'll make a 10-year prediction. I think the one-hit wonders are going to go away because no one has the time or money or effort to be able to spend on these, right? Like you need to, especially labels and artists, you got to hustle. You have to make it worth the investment. I mean, these are they're businesses now, right? It's not. Um, you can't be willy nilly about you know giving someone a million dollars to go in the studio, and then they have one hit. So, 
I think it's going to be, I would hope it would be more focused and there just has to be more hustle from, and I think there is, from the artists themselves. Because I feel like it also used to be like, I mean, then like back, back in the day, artists would get signed to a label and be like, all right, I'm just going to make the music. You guys do everything else. They, you have the budgets. You hand out pig sponges and you, you, know, you do whatever. And I'm just going to be the creative guy. Artists don't have that luxury anymore. They need to to work it and work, continue to work it even when they are assigned to a label because you never know and the industry is so fickle and fans are so fickle. Well, and the authenticity is important too. It can't just be Absolutely. That even if you have a label who's paying attention to you because you're lucky and no one important is coming out with the record the same day you are. Right. Um, like that's not seeing like a, you know, whatever. I, I saw a Taylor Swift ad on the back of a UPS truck today, <laughs> right? you know, but as a fan, I'm not like, Oh, Taylor, like she's really connecting with me right now. Um, it's, it's the things where, you know, she sends a personal graduation gift to yep. some random super fan. Like that's, that's those moments like the Katy Perry moment you mentioned. So, well, and she's doing these like secret 30 person listening Events. Oh, and whether that, it was right. her idea or the label's idea, it doesn't matter. It's happening slash she's willing to do these things. Right. So which I think is best, very important. The best team, the best support in the world, but but it's still about her actually being there for her fans. Oh, absolutely. I think that's a very interesting prediction that you've made. I think I think people and I also just think people won't care as much about one offs. I don't know. But maybe, maybe because it is more passive, they don't even notice. When our parents were young, like my mom, your dad, Brooklyn, you mm-hmm, know, mm-hmm. Brooklyn folks. Crown Heights. My mom definitely didn't know the name of the artist of everyone that she was listening to. Right. Is what I'm getting at. <laughs> right, right, right. Like when it was these random songs, especially like in the 50s. And and she often didn't even know if it was a man or a woman singing. She's sure. always surprised now when she like sees an artist from her childhood. She's like, oh. Like I thought that was a woman. Well, but even things because a lot of like those you know songs like had like the falsetto and whatever, right. and and <laughs> now it's sort of like everyone knows everything. Not only do you know the artist, but you know who they're married to. You know who you know. It's, it's like, information like, it's, overload. It's crazy, but it's it's actually interesting. What we were saying is that on the flip side, it's like as it becomes more of a background thing, it's almost like a return to music for the music's sake, where it's like, oh, I like that song. It's very pleasant. I enjoy listening to this. It's uh, it's a great workout song. That's all I need to know about it. And like, there's actually something sort of pure about that. That's interesting. Well, and I think it's also interesting in this age of like, and I'll go back to SoundCloud, but you know, SoundCloud has the like continuous play feature. So you're, and like recommended tracks and all the, all this discovery stuff that's happening on all the, on all the services too. And you'll, you'll start with something and then you'll end up somewhere totally different and be like, wait a second, how, like, how did I get here? Right. Um, and if you're lucky, you'll have the service will provide you with some sort of like history list. So you can actually go back and be like, wait, what was that song that right. I, that I, oh, I like played that. when I was doing the dishes and my hands were wet, so I couldn't go ping it. Um, but it's really interesting, but even just like talking about our parents, I mean, even cause in our, with Oregon trail generation, Oh yeah. Right. Um, taping songs off the radio. Sometimes you didn't know who it was because the 
the there was no Shazam. Right. If the if the DJ didn't say who it was, you could wonder what this song that you're obsessed with, who the artist was forever and you'd like go to your friend and be like oh it's a song it's like nah, 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 nah. <laughs> and they'd be like i don't, I don't know what you're talking about um or play them your mixtape and then like right. be a whole like sleuthing thing because there's no google either yeah to try it like type in the lyrics yeah it's and funny figure it out I, I wonder if in the end it's almost like it'll it'll go to the two extremes like either you have artists that you're totally obsessed with and you do everything that they do and you buy all their merch and you're like whatever and then there's just these general music discovery services that you just sort of like just because it's nice and it's on in the background and and sure. it's almost like there's no room in the middle. Well, I think what's interesting is I think the middle and I think what's actually doing very, very well now are festivals because you get to go to this festival that is in theory somewhat tailored to your musical taste and you get more bang for your buck. You spend a couple hundred dollars. You get to see all of these artists, right. some of which maybe you're huge fans of, some of which you've never heard of. But you get to like hang out with your friends all day and, li- and listen to music instead of dropping 80 to 150 bucks to go see one act. Right. For, for an hour and a half or something. For an hour and a half. Yeah. Well, right. Talk about experiential. That's Exactly. But I think it's, I feel like... I mean, I still go to shows sometimes, but I go to the ones that I want to. Yeah, they're very targeted. Um, They're very targeted. And that's because of my lifestyle and my family and whatever. But I feel like people are doing that now because they're getting really expensive. But I feel like a lot of people are going to festivals. Like whenever I hear, and also this could be because we also live in New York and there's a lot of festivals that come through here, but that I hear more about people going to festivals and there's more buzz around festivals than individual shows. Well, and even like, do you even see, I feel like, and when I was doing digital marketing, we would show reviews all the time. Mm -hmm. I feel like rarely. When I see a show, I like look up the reviews, but it's all like random people's blogs. Like there's no real reviews. Rolling Stone isn't like, no, no, they're not doing anything. I can't even like whoever whoever played in the garden last night. um, I just heard festival wise, by the way, that there's a new, James Vanderbeek like mockumentary series where he plays Diplo. What? <laughs> all of the things you just said are weird. That's and all I, know I know they're all That's all I know, but <laughs> I'm pretty sure I'm right. Um thank you for joining me. This is really fun. Yeah, it was. It was totally weird, but it was fun. <laughs> Hopefully not too weird. Not too weird. But it is funny just to talk into a microphone at each other. Yes, especially because I don't think we've actually done this before. No, I don't think so. I've been around you in a microphone, but I don't think I've talked at you into a microphone. No, we've sung at each other. Mm, that's true. But we never, didn't touch on that. But never much. the spoken word. Oh well, thank you for having me. Thanks for coming. Thanks for listening to this episode. If you liked it, you should listen to more. If you didn't like it, then I'm not sure how you made it all the way to the end. But either way, uh, please subscribe, share on social media, tell your friends. uh, And uh, we've got some amazing guests coming up over the coming weeks and uh, throughout the rest of the year. So stay tuned and I'll see you next time.